Thank you, Miller. Isn't it great we have so many wonderful piano players? We have so many, we have to rotate them around and for, for this role as well as uh, Sunday worship. It's a, it's a blessing to have so many talented musicians in our church. There are things in life that we don't really look forward to very much because we don't enjoy them. You might even say that we hate some of these things. For example, who likes getting up early in the morning? There's a handful, okay, but you're, you're all weird because <laughs> most people really don't like getting up early in the morning. You might not like going to the urologist. You might not like going to dentist appointments. Some people really hate going to the dentist. I had a guy I used to work with, and he would break out into a cold sweat when he had just a regular dentist appointment. You might hate cleaning toilets, right? Exercising, a lot of people hate that. Changing dirty diapers. Doing our taxes. That's up on the list of things. I've heard that one measure of maturity is doing things that you don't want to do, even things you hate doing, just because they're necessary or just because they're the right things to do. Then there are things that, at least in our minds, are even worse than these things we've mentioned. These are things we dread. We don't just hate doing them. We dread the, even the thought of doing them. Some of us, for example, dread any occasion of public speaking. I'm like that. <laughs> Some of us might dread written tests or exams. Some of us, what other people don't look forward to because they really don't enjoy them, we just dread. We dread doing it. Some people dread getting older. You know, realizing the day that has finally come when everything hurts and what doesn't hurt doesn't work, right? Anybody relate to that? Or dreading the day when your insurance company has started sending you their free calendar one month at a time. Now this morning, I want to visit a topic that fits into the category of things that we don't like, things that we hate, or maybe even things that we dread. It's also one of those marks of Christian maturity if we do it, even though it makes us, at the very least, uncomfortable. The Apostle Paul wrote this to the Corinthians in chapter 2, or 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. What an awesome thing that is to consider. He gave us the ministry. He entrusted to us the message and the ministry of reconciliation. We are his ambassadors. God makes his appeal to people to come to Christ, to be reconciled to God through Christ, and he chooses to use us to do this. Let that sink in for a minute. That's a privilege, but we dread it sometimes. Jesus said uh, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will be my witnesses. And there are some here for whom the idea of going out witnessing sounds fun and exciting. But I believe those people are like the people who like to get up early in the morning. They're few 
and far between. For most of us, this sounds like something we dread. It's evangelism, and most of, it find, most of us find it very difficult, at least difficult. I've thought a lot about why this is true. Why is it true? We have such a privilege of being given this ministry of reconciliation, the privilege of leading people to the kingdom of God. Now, I think I've come up with at least one key reason why most of us dread going out on the street or even going to one of our neighbors and doing what we traditionally call evangelism. It's not just fear of rejection. For some of us, it's that. It's not just that it takes us out of our comfort zone. For a lot of us, it's definitely that. It's not just that we fear we won't know what to say or how to say it or when to say it. I think evangelism is one of those things we dislike or even dread because we've so narrowly defined the parameters of what evangelism is. And we have a sort of Christian cultural understanding that evangelism is bringing people to that moment, that point of deciding to follow Christ. Now, part of the problem with our fear of this is that it is that. It is that, at least eventually, but that's not all that evangelism is. Evangelism isn't just the point of decision, that moment when a person is convicted by the Holy Spirit that he's a sinner, repents and turns and decides to trust Jesus for his eternal destiny. That's just a part of the process. But well-meaning teachers and preachers and writers through the years have made the point of decision in evangelism, which is again part of evangelism, they've made that the sum total of what evangelism is. And since most of us don't like to challenge people, we don't like to confront them in any way or ask them to make a decision or ask them to do something, we're not only uncomfortable with this part of the process, but we dread it. It feels too much like selling something, and most of us don't like to sell. There's some people who are really good at sales, and they even enjoy it. Those are the rich people that you know, because if you're really good at selling, you can make a lot of good money. But most of us find it challenging at best and dreadful at worst. In fact, one study that I'll reference this morning revealed that the most rejected form of evangelism is the uninvited home visit. That's the most rejected form of evangelism. That means it's not just dreadful for us, but it's dreadful for those we evangelize. They hate it when we come and just make a cold call on them. And that shouldn't surprise us if you think about it in today's culture. Do you like it when someone shows up at your door to sell something? I don't. I don't appreciate that very much. Now, about a year ago, actually a year ago tomorrow, Jim Grinnell did all of us a great service in a sermon that he preached called, I Will Make You Fishers of Men. I'm sure you all remember that very, very well. Yeah, I see the eyes glaze over. That's the good thing, Jim. We can preach things every year and they, let, they, they don't even remember it. It was a year ago tomorrow I looked it up because I remembered this message. And in that message, the reason I say he did a great service for all of us is because he normalized evangelism for all of us. He talked about the angle scale. That might uh, resurrect some of your memory here. He pointed out to us that if we can move people just one step closer to Christ, even if we never have the joy of seeing them actually come into his kingdom, maybe that happens much later and we never know about it, but if we move people just one step closer, then we are, in fact, doing evangelism. We are, in fact, his ambassadors. We are his witnesses. So let's start by redefining 
just what evangelism is and isn't. First of all, evangelism isn't just a particular method. We've all heard different methods. Some of us have been trained in different methods of evangelism. Evangelistic crusades or special events are not the only kind of evangelism. Evangelism explosion in which some of us were trained is not the only thing that qualifies as evangelism. The four spiritual laws developed by Campus Crusade for Christ are not the only kind of evangelism. Street witnessing or door-to-door witnessing are not all there is to evangelism. Now, hear me say that these are all good programs. They're all worthy. There's nothing wrong with these things. They're worthwhile, and sometimes they're fruitful. Even the no-place-left training that many of us learned from last year is not the only way to do evangelism, as worthwhile as it is. Now, the common denominator of most of these things we've mentioned is an abridged but otherwise full presentation of the gospel that begins by explaining the sin problem and ends with an invitation to receive Christ. Now, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong, again, with all these kinds of things, all right? They've been effective in bringing people to Christ, and for that, we should all be grateful. But here's the problem. Most of us never or hardly ever do these kinds of things. Why? Because we dread the whole experience. Most of us will avoid this, and then after we avoid it, we'll feel guilty because we're not involved in evangelism. And then we just sit and kind of wallow in that guilt and feel bad every time somebody talks about the time they led somebody to Christ. Now, if we define evangelism by these kinds of activities alone, what happens when we don't do these things? In real life, most of our encounters, apart from real growing relationships, if you think about it, they're limited to just a few minutes here and there as we talk to a coworker or a school friend or a neighbor or the checkout person in the grocery store, or how about that family member that you've blasted with the gospel so many times that they've begun to avoid you at family gatherings? Most of the time, you can't give a worthy presentation of the gospel in these settings. If you try, you sometimes end up alienating yourself. So what do we do? We don't say anything at all. And that's a mistake too, folks. What most of us are is not evangelists. What all of us are is witnesses. We are all witnesses. Jesus told the disciples in Acts 1.8 that they will be his witnesses. One Bible dictionary defines a witness like this, one who has information or knowledge of something, and hence one who can give information, bring to light, or confirm something. Witnesses proclaim. They tell, in this case, through not just word, but deed. As followers of Jesus, we are witnesses of the grace and mercy of God. We are witnesses of his plan of salvation. We are witnesses of his good news at work in our lives. If we begin to think of ourselves more as witnesses living out the life of Christ in the midst of a lost world and looking for opportunities to share that life, to share that story, we can begin to realize that we are, in fact, doing the work of evangelism. A critical thing to note is that evangelism is a process. We need to view it as such. Not everyone is at a point of making a decision to follow Jesus. That's just reality. I do think we need to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit, so when the time is right to say something, 
to ask someone when the Holy Spirit's made them ready to consider the most important decision that they'll ever make. We can be ready to cooperate with the work that really only the Holy Spirit can do anyway. I don't know any other way to do that than to be ready ourselves, to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading, and to be continually praying for people. That's a critical component of our witness. And to abide in the vine, to live in Christ, so that we say we stay exceptionally close to the Lord. And we don't have to strain to hear his voice. We don't have to wonder about how we can be his tool, his instrument. We don't have to struggle to be obedient, to do what he asks us to do when we stay in right relationship with Christ constantly. But if we see our role as bringing people step by step closer to Christ, we'll be fulfilling Jesus' admonition to be his witnesses. And as we serve as witnesses, we are, in fact, participating in the process. Again, it's a process of evangelism. The incremental efforts of plowing, of seed planting, of watering are absolutely essential to the eventual harvest that comes when people come to the point of accepting the free gift of eternal life through Christ. It's interesting to note how little the New Testament actually uses the word evangelism or evangelist. Any guess how many times? Three. Three. There are three verses that use... Now, we're talking about the English word, okay? The, the, the word that's translated. There are three verses that use an English form of the word evangelism. One's in Acts 21, verse 8. It mentions Philip, who apparently was gifted as an evangelist. Another is a list of the kinds of gifts that God has given the church in Ephesians 4.11, and that includes evangelists along with apostles, prophets, and pastor teachers. The third time is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, and there Timothy is encouraged to do the work of an evangelist. So apparently Timothy was like most of us. He wasn't an evangelist, but he was encouraged to do that work. That's it. That's it. That's, those are the only three places where you see the word evangelism or evangelist used in the, in the English form. So you'd think that something we consider to be so important and something that we feel so much guilt about not doing would be talked about more. But here's the problem with letting ourselves off the hook so easily. Though this particular word, evangelism or evangelist, is not used very often in Scripture, the New Testament believers lived and breathed what we could call what we would call evangelism. That's because the same root word for evangelism in the New Testament is also translated good news or gospel. And these words are used quite often in the New Testament. And the gospel or the good news of our salvation in Christ, the good news of the kingdom of God, was the very air that the early church breathed. The good news of the kingdom of God. They lived the gospel. And yes, they spoke the gospel. They were witnesses testifying in their lives and in their words to the power of the gospel at work in them. And that's not even mentioning the Great Commission to go into all the world and make disciples. That applies to all of us who are his followers. That's about obedience. So a quick and incomplete study of evangelism in New Testament times might make you feel like you're off the hook. Well, it's only mentioned three times. Hey, evangelism... Mentioned three times, how could it be that important? How could it require something of us? But the good news is mentioned dozens of times, and though the New Testament does not ask all of us to be evangelists per se, as we've noted 
it does ask all of us to be his witnesses. I just finished reading a really interesting book, and it's called The Unchurched Next Door. Anybody read that book before? Okay. It's not a really new book, but it's uh, not terribly old, maybe uh, five, six years. It's by a writer and researcher named Tom Rayner. And in this book, there are some great insights about evangelism that I want to share with you this morning. Now, Jim, in his sermon a year ago, he cited the Engel scale. I think the Engel scale is about 10 steps, okay? It's about 10 steps uh, toward Christ, okay? And you can uh, learn about uh, where people are and that on the scale, all right? Well, this book talked about what they called the Rayner scale, named after the writer of the book, and it's a similar idea. In other words, everyone is somewhere along a continuum. They're along a line, a progress where they where we can tell how spiritually close they are or how far they are to Jesus, okay? There are some defining characteristics that are uh, outlined in the book in detail, which we won't go into this morning, but they hint of a person's spiritual state. How ready are they, all right? So let's look at the Rayner scale this morning, and let's look at the percentages of the population of unbelievers who fall, the unchurched, who fall into each category. First of all, we have, we have at the very top what they call the U5, okay? They are highly resistant to the gospel. They even have an antagonistic attitude toward Christians and the gospel. But that's only 5% of the population. It's not a large percentage. And then the U4s, we see we move closer to uh, uh, readiness to receive the gospel. U4s are still resistant to the gospel, but they're not antagonistic, okay? That's about 21% of the population. The U3s are right there in the middle. They're kind of neutral, and they're the largest percentage, 36%. They're perhaps open to discussion, but they're not really psyched about it, you know, okay? Then U2s are receptive to the gospel and to the church. That's a pretty large number, 27%. That's a quarter of the population. And then U1s are highly receptive to the gospel. They're like the Philippian jailer that we read read about in Acts chapter 16. He heard the gospel and immediately responded. And that's 11%. So several things come out quite clearly in this research, and this is what the book's about. One is that the biggest factor by far in moving someone toward following Jesus was ongoing relationships with Christians and seeing faith modeled in their lives. Really, that shouldn't be a big surprise to any of us, right? Isn't that how most of us came to Christ? That shouldn't be a big surprise. But then let's translate this into what we do. This far exceeded other factors, such as reading books or tracts or even when you could get them to read the Bible or watching videos, it was those relationships. The other one was a surprising statistic that I hope will compel more of us to participate in these steps of evangelism, okay? And that is that 82%, 82% of all those surveyed from the more resistant to the really ready to receive are at least somewhat likely to attend church if they were just invited. That's an astounding number to me, folks. That's an astounding... 82% are at least somewhat likely, not very likely necessarily, some are very likely, but at least somewhat likely, okay? Now, the U5s, of course, they're resistant to the gospel and sometimes even hostile, so they're even highly unlikely to attend, even if we invite them. 
But that 82% encompasses even the U4s, U3s, U2s, U1s. Okay? So here's the challenge for us. Despite the fact that four out of five people in our uh, city, let's just say if it applies here in Tulsa, four out of five people are at least somewhat likely to attend church if we just invite them. Only 21% of active church-going believers, that's us here, folks, only 21% of active church-going believers invite anyone in a given year. That's another startling statistic to me. So the number one message in this book, if you come away with anything this morning, it's the key point in this morning's message too, invite them. Invite them. Invite them. Given the parameters we've mentioned, they are more likely than not to come if we just invite them. And while, again, inviting them to church is certainly not the sum total of what it means to do evangelism and to be witnesses, we don't want to rely on that alone. If you invite people to come to church, you are, in fact, participating in a component of evangelism. Another key and related point from the study that was cited in the book is this. Most of the unchurched would respond positively to a genuine Christian who would spend time with them in a gentle, non-judgmental relationship. And again, this shouldn't be a surprise to us because, again, isn't this how we came to Christ? Isn't this how I came to Christ? Because somebody spent time with you. They got to know you. They cared about you as a person. It's easy for people to tell whether we're genuinely interested in them as people or if we're just interested in them as things we can check off our list of duties. Well, we've got to evangelize. I've done it. I've spent time with this person, right? The unchurched can tell the difference between what we might call drive-by evangelism and a person who really cares. Let's be those people who really care as we build relationships with the unchurched. For close to two years now, folks, we've had an ongoing emphasis on evangelism here at TCF. And that's because this is an area of church life with the elders believe that we can improve on. And we want to do better because we're given the ministry of reconciliation. So though we can certainly approve, improve, I'm sorry, in this arena, that's largely what this morning's message is about. I also noted in the study that there's some things that we're already doing right, okay? The fact that we're already doing right, I hope, will encourage us. It will spur us on to even better things in our evangelistic efforts, and specifically with children, because it can have an impact on their families. The study shows that many unchurched are far more concerned about the spiritual well-being of their children than even themselves. Churches that are highly intentional about reaching youth and children tend to be among the most evangelistic churches in America, and uh, when we encounter people who are unchurched, we need to mention their children. So, Here's what we're doing right, folks, Good News Club and VBS. And before that, we were doing Kids Hope. These things are right in line with what are some of the most effective forms of evangelism happening among the unchurched. So certainly we want to do better. Certainly we want to follow these things better. But this study tells me that at least I believe we're on the right track doing some of these things that we're doing. So let's not grow discouraged or weary in this well-doing. Another area where we're right on track is this point from the study, and this is surprising considering the culture these days, but doctrine really matters to the unchurched. Churches that attempt to reach unchurched people, this is a quote from the book, by compromising or diluting the teachings of Scripture are counterproductive. 
Strong biblical teaching is critical. Another quote from the book, it was really sad to go to churches that thought they were being relevant when they were really just being worldly. I got out of those churches as quickly as I could. 91%, 91% folks, where are we, there we go, said doctrine was the number one issue to unchurched people seeking a church. 91%, 9 out of 10 people. Doctrine has always been, still is, and hopefully always will be incredibly vitally important here at TCF. We cannot be ashamed of or shy about what the, what the Word teaches and what we believe, especially when it's countercultural. And folks, so much now of what we believe is truly countercultural. Here's another thing the study revealed. Let's look again at the Rainer scale. We look at those uh, uh, last two, the U2s and U1s. Now, U2s, 27% of those surveyed are receptive to the gospel and to the church. U1s are highly receptive. Now, together, they make up almost 40% of the population. Think about that. A moment ago, we noted that there are 82% of all those in the study who are at least somewhat likely to attend church if they're invited. That number goes up to 97% when we're looking just at the U1s, 97%. These people are ripe for harvest, folks. Yes, we have to identify them first, but still, this is an amazing statistic. How hard would it be for us to invite people to come to church? It may be hard to, quote-unquote, go witnessing, right? That's something we dread. It may be hard to make cold calls, and of course we cited that the study shows that they're the least effective form of evangelism anyway. But how hard is it to invite a friend, to invite a coworker, to invite a fellow student if you're in school, to invite a neighbor, to invite a teammate on one of your athletic endeavors to come to church? How hard would it be to bring them or to meet them here? so that they're not walking into a strange world alone. And we can be a strange world here at TCF. It's least to people outside, right? They're unchurched, folks. This is normal to us. It's not to them. How hard would it be to bring them and to introduce them to others at TCF? Now, folks, that's part of evangelism, too. That's part of evangelism, too. It's not, again, the sum total, but it's still part of the process. As Jim noted a year ago, if we can move someone one step up the scale. So if we're looking at the Rainer scale, if we can make, bring them from a U5 to a U4, or a U4 to a U3, or a U3 to a U2, we are, we are doing evangelism. We're doing evangelism. Now, I don't like it when Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door. I can imagine many people feel the same way about us Christians. It goes against the grain. It's kind of unnatural. I think most of us are where I am. Our hearts are in the wrong place. Or, I'm sorry, Our hearts are in the right place. We know people need Jesus. We know people need Jesus. We truly want to see people in the kingdom, yet we dread the idea of evangelism, yet we dread just as much seeing lost people spend eternity in hell. So the truth is, I'm not an evangelist. Some of us here are. I'm grateful for that. But most of us are not like that and never will be. The vast majority of us will never be evangelists. Evangelism is a God-given gift, and I'm thankful some have that gift. But what we all are, 
and this is where we are not let off the hook, what we all are is witnesses. We are light. We are salt. We are called to be his witnesses. And in that, to participate in the process that God uses to bring people to himself. So the tension is there, folks. We are to be witnesses, but most of us are where I am. We're not evangelists. And it takes all the gumption we can muster to do any of what we might consider to be the more traditional evangelistic things. So what do we end up doing? Nothing. We end up doing nothing. I think it's time to refocus our thinking. Maybe the problem is with the assumptions we have. Maybe these traditional things that we think of as evangelism, and again, they're not bad things, but maybe they're only a small percentage of the things that God can, will, and wants to do through us to reach people for Christ. Naturally occurring evangelism and occurs as part of our lifestyle part of our ongoing relationships. It's the overflow, if you will, the overflow of our life in Christ, which is why I said earlier we need to stay rooted and connected and stay in Christ. We need to abide in the vine. Think about people you know who have deep convictions or passionate interests, and I'm not talking necessarily about spiritual interests. Think about how easily and naturally You learn about those convictions or interests. They're a part of that person's life. It's like they can't even really hide it. They can't separate that from their other parts of their life. Spend much time with me, for example, and you'll figure out that I'm a sports fan and that I like sci-fi. You spend much time with me, you're going to know that. You spend much time with Jane Rule and you're going to discover she loves dogs, right? It just flows from her life. It's part of who she is. You spend some time with Mike Bros. And you'll learn not only that he's a big Kansas fan, he wears that on his shirt most weeks, but he loves to smoke. Meat, that is. (laughs) Mike loves to smoke meats. And I have to tell you, I've experienced it. It's really good stuff. These are the kinds of things that flow naturally from our lives because they are deep interests. It's the same kind of contagious passion that we are supposed to exhibit about our life in Christ. That's the kind of people... I believe God wants us to be. That's the kind of thing that produces overflow, which witnesses to the grace of God in our lives. It's our life, the way we respond to good things and bad things, the priorities in our lives. These are the things that people recognize when they get to know us. So the truth is we are witnesses. All of us here are witnesses, whether we're aware of it or not, whether we want to be or not. So the question is, what kind of witnesses will we be? Did you ever notice that when you spend a lot of time around people, you begin to sometimes imitate things about them? Take on maybe characteristics of speaking, phrases, accents, behaviors, maybe even beliefs. Now, let's think about this. Do we live the kinds of lives that people want to mimic, to imitate? Do we live the kind of Christ-like lives that people would want to pattern their lives after? To me, it gives added meaning to what we read in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So salt and light, which is what the Word tells us that we are supposed to be, but they're not projects that we undertake. They are characteristics of the people of God who are living in faithfulness to what the Word of God instructs us to be. What you do flows from who you are. Witness, evangelism, flows from who and what you are. The characteristic 
of something like salt or light determines what it does. Charles Colson once said of Christians that being precedes doing. The idea is that we need to be Christians in our circle of influence. It's the most powerful evangelism tool we have. There's a flip side to this idea of being witnesses. Remember we talked a moment ago about how we are witnesses. We will be either good witnesses or bad witnesses. Paul admonished the Jews in Romans that God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. John Calvin recognized this problem 400 years ago when he wrote, everything bad they can seize hold of in our life is twisted maliciously against Christ and his teaching. The result is that by our fault, God's sacred name is exposed to insult. Let me echo Paul here and say, may it never be, folks. May that never be true of us. Jerry Bridges said this, as believers, we should seek to be exemplary in every aspect of our lives, doing our best for the sake of Christ and his gospel. Our work, our play, our driving, our shopping should all be done with a view that not only will unbelievers have nothing bad to say, but on the contrary, they will be attracted to the gospel that they see at work in our lives. We are light. We are salt. It's the idea of infiltration as opposed to confrontation. Now, here's the truth, folks. The idea that evangelism is always confrontation, I believe, is a big reason we don't do it. If we see evangelism as always being confrontation, we're going to avoid it. We're going to dread it, like we talked about earlier. Influence from within our culture, from within our individual circles of influence, that's what we should be about. We have a circle of influence. This circle did not develop by accident. You have a circle of influence that I don't have. Ours may overlap to some degree, but all of us have a circle of influence. It's our neighborhoods, folks. It's our recreation. It's our work. It's our families, our schools, our commerce, where we shop, where we spend our money. Again, we must also remember that people are at different places along the path to life. As we've noted, when we think of evangelism, we often think of the moment of harvest, which is a wonderful thing. But let's not forget how much precedes the harvest. In fact, must precede the harvest. No harvest happens without these things. There's cultivating. Sometimes that means earning the right to be heard, showing people you really do care. There's planting, there's watering, there's growing, and then comes the harvest. All these things have to happen in an order. 1 Corinthians 3 recognizes that God is the one who does all these things, all these things related to the harvest. And though the context of the passage that I'm going to read here in a second refers to unity in the church, it clearly recognizes that all these things must happen. What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned each to his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field. God's building. A person's entrance into the kingdom of God may happen in a moment when they accept Christ, but getting to that point is always a process. Many people like the U5s through the U2s aren't ready to receive Christ at this moment. So most of us, because of that, are involved in cultivating and planting and watering. The attention always seems to go 
to the one who reaps the harvest, the one who actually gains the privilege, and what a wonderful privilege it is of actually leading someone into the Lord Jesus Christ because they've maybe encountered a you one, someone who's ripe for harvest, who's ready, and you encounter that person and you share the gospel with them, and they say, yes, where have you been all my life, right? That happens. But note that this scripture says God is responsible for it all. Sometimes we need to earn the right to be heard. Sometimes we need to model. We need to be an example. We need to allow people to see the mark, the imprint of Jesus on our life because our actions sometimes speak louder than words. That's at least one kind of evangelism, I believe, that God has envisioned for TCF. And why? Because it encompasses all of us. Doesn't let any one of us off the hook. All of us are responsible for this. Those who are gifted as evangelists and most of the rest of us who really aren't. We don't have to go looking for the lost, for the strayed, for the hurting. We live among them daily. One of the articles I reviewed in preparing this message said this, I learned I could effectively spread the message of Jesus Christ without having to fit a mold that isn't me. And a lot of these programs are great, they're wonderful, but they're trying to squeeze everybody into the same mold. And some of us are squeezable, we're moldable, and maybe it's good that we learn those programs. And again, they're good things to do. But I find this idea very liberating, that I don't have to fit a mold to still be a witness for Christ. Doesn't that lift the guilt from you when you haven't led anybody to the Lord this week? The flip side of this is that, again, I don't think it lets us off the hook at all. In fact, I believe that in some ways it's a more demanding call than we would normally associate with evangelism. Our call, our responsibility is to be witnesses, to be his ambassadors, and to practice the ministry of reconciliation. So if you're just an evangelist, you can be on when you're evangelizing, but you can kind of maybe slack off the rest of the time. If you're a witness, you're always a witness. You're always witnessing to something in your life by the way you live, by the way you respond to life's challenges. So this is a harder call than saying, go, let's go witnessing, and you dread it, okay? This is something we have to live. Also, don't hear me saying this morning that we're just supposed to be nice people and others will notice this and come to Jesus. Nice never wins anyone to Christ. Evangelism is a process, and it's often a long one of cultivating with the love of Jesus, planting seeds of his grace in people's lives, watering with his mercy. There still does come a point or a season of decision where that person must be challenged with the claims of Christ, the reality of their sin, the grace and mercy of God, the need to repent and to turn their lives over to Christ. So even though the actual inviting them to respond to the gospel is not the sum total of evangelism, it is God's end goal. And it is the result that we always pray for. All of the more traditional things that we could think of when we think of evangelism and witnessing are very right on this part of the equation. Yet we dread leading with, we dread starting out with that challenge or that infant invitation or that confrontation because we see it that way. We find it challenging to confront people with these truth claims. And because of that, we often leave the work of evangelism to others. But none of us have that luxury. 
as followers of Christ, we are witnesses. Are we good witnesses or are we bad witnesses? Or maybe just ineffective and inattentive to our role. Do our lives illustrate the grace and mercy of God? Are we seeking out opportunities to engage the people that are in our circle of influence, that are already in our lives? We're not even going to have to go look for them. Are we seeking out opportunities to engage them, even if our part in the process is primarily the plowing or the watering or the planting of seeds? Are we willing to build relationships with those who need Jesus unconditionally, developing genuine relationships, not just pre-selling them and then trusting God and looking for the opportunity to share with them my story of God's mercy reaching out to me, how God grasped my heart and saved me from sin and eternal death. There was a young salesman who was disappointed about losing a big sale. And I thought this story was appropriate because a lot of times we think of evangelism as sales. Okay, And as he talked with his sales manager, he lamented, I guess it just proves you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And the manager replied, son, take my advice. You're not, your job is not to make him drink. Your job is to make him thirsty. That's our job, folks. Our job is to make people thirsty. We can't make them drink. Only the Lord brings people to, to uh, Jesus. So it is with evangelism for most of us. Our lives should be so filled with Christ that they create a thirst for the gospel. Only God saves. But God allows all of us. He gives us the privilege. He calls all of us to the privilege of participating in this process that he uses to bring people to himself. Let's remember that as we pass that sign that's on the way out this morning. Take a look at it. What does it say? You are now entering the mission field. Let's not be so absorbed, self-absorbed. Let's not be so insulated in our lives, even in good things, that we forget the people who are all around us headed for hell unless they receive the gift of life. It's a gift that we have the joy and privilege of communicating to them as God chooses to use us as his instruments of grace. Respond however you would this morning as I pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that you have given us, as your word says, the ministry of reconciliation. You have entrusted to us this message, Father, this incredible message of redemption, Lord. We're grateful, Father, that you have made us your ambassadors and that we are your witnesses. Father God, help us to be good witnesses in all that we do. Help us to say so, so, so steep, deeply rooted in the vine, so abiding in Christ, that the overflow of our lives, Father, participates in what you want us to do, that we are ambassadors, that we are witnesses. May the witness of our lives as we trust in you and look to you as our source and look to you for our salvation and our redemption, may it truly make a difference in the lives of the others as we have the joy of cultivating and planting and watering and some of us have the joy of being there at that moment when you reap the harvest of souls because of something that we have participated in. We thank you for these things, Lord, and ask your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen.